I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. everybody. Today we're going to be talking to Raymond Craig, who is a professor of American history and a Latin Americanist at Cornell University, whose research looks at the intersection of space, politics, and everyday practice. His most recent book is Adventure Capitalism, a history of libertarian exit from the era of decolonization to the digital age, and probably my favorite read of the year. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me and thank you for reading the book. So maybe we could start a little bit with the history of yourself and and the book project. Did you start off wanting to write about Libertarian Exit? And then how I'm so fascinated how you came to learn about the story of Michael Oliver. And in particular, you know, as historians, we don't often get to talk to the people we're writing about. And I think you did get to, to chat with Michael Oliver. So what that experience was like researching the book. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, this this was a project that I didn't expect to write. So most of my work over the past, you know, 25 years or so has been in Mexico and in Chile. And I, you know, I came to this project in a bit of a strange way. So my my wife is uh, she grew up in Hawaii and and was a pretty avid outrigger canoeer. So for your listeners, you know, the canoes that you would see at the beginning of the show, Hawaii Five O, you know, the canoes with the with the outrigger with the float on the left hand side so that you can paddle in the open ocean. And so we did a lot of paddling on the lake where where we live. And I just got very interested in sort of open ocean navigation and a lot of the really interesting stuff, the, the sort of renaissance in Polynesian navigation and outrigger canoe and stuff like this. In the process of doing that, I came across these individuals who called them, you know, who started talking about Polynesians as original seasteaders, and I came across the Seasteading Institute. And I was quite surprised by their rhetoric and by their claims that they could colonize the so-called open ocean and the high seas and, you know, the way in which they thought about the ocean as a space that was available for them to colonize. And so that's kind of how I came to it in a weird way. I mean, I, I, you know, I started looking into the Seasteading Institute and was, you know, to be perfectly honest, somewhat appalled by what I was finding. And and then the, from there, you know, because I am a historian, I, I, you know, I got interested in these contemporary projects, but I wanted to then look historically at the kinds of things that they were talking about and the things that they were doing. And of course, there's a long history to these ideas about colonizing the ocean and also ideas about islands as laboratory spaces and things like this. And so I wanted to go back in time and try to look at that. I also was, you know, very much wanted to do that because there is a tendency, I think, amongst the 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 sort of tech utopian Silicon Valley crowd to think that, you know, anything they come up with is sort of 
utterly original on their part. Yeah, so the book is about liber- what I call libertarian exit, and I can just very quickly give listeners a sense of that. So by exit, what I'm talking about is is people who are attempting uh, to essentially leave the contemporary nation state as we know it. So they're not going to be expats. They're not going to be expatriates. They're not going to just move away from their country of citizenship and residence and sort of take up uh, living someplace else. They're actually actively looking to create a new country, a new kind of entity, sovereign entity of some kind. So they're looking actually for spaces to to, to do this. And of course, it's very difficult on a planet that's been carved up by the sovereign nation state kind of paradigm. But this is what they're attempting to do, both in the 60s and, and up to today. And that's what I mean by exit. It's a little bit different than than other forms of exit that one might think about, you know, maroon slave communities, the Zapatistas in southern Mexico and their autonomous communities. So I try to differentiate between the projects I look at and those kinds of projects. And then libertarian refers to essentially a kind of, I guess you could say Anglo-Austrian American sort of idea, right? It comes from the Austrian school of economics that gave us kind of the neoliberal era. So Hayek, Milton Friedman, Ludwig von Mises, and the kind of central character for many of the people I look at, which is Ayn Rand. And this is a, you know, so this is a kind of libertarianism that's not anarchist. It's it's what people would call anarcho-capitalist. That's not a term that I like, but, you know, I, I think as a shorthand, it works. So they're hyper-capitalist. They are very individualist. They want to see markets sovereign and then states should be stripped down and limited to doing nothing more than essentially making sure that markets are sovereign. So the sort of minimalist state argument. And so this was this is the kind of world that Michael Oliver is operating in in the 1960s, as are many other uh, people as well. There's an array of projects like this, uh, similar to the kinds of things that Oliver is trying to do, many of them undertaken by by wealthy people in the United States and wealthy people in the UK and its Commonwealth. Australia is a place here that I don't spend as much time on as I would have liked to have because there are an array of projects coming out of Australia as well. And so the idea here was to essentially try to set up a new country. Oliver wrote in 1968, he published a, a book, self-published, called A New Constitution for a New Country, which has a preface that, that is very revealing uh, of his kind of ideological position and is a, is a constitution, you know, that he basically dictates by fiat. I didn't do any interviews with him. It took me a long time to find him. And I wasn't necessarily actively looking for him. I was curious as to whether or not he was still alive, right? He was born in 1928. And the thing that was peculiar about this is that when I spoke with various people about my project, and especially in some places, his name is kind of legendary. I mean, um, people sort of, you know, revile him or revere him, but he's kind of, a, you know, he's someone everybody knows. And this was certainly the case in Vanuatu. I mean, in Vanuatu, everybody remembers Michael Oliver. There were, you know, lots and lots of mysterious claims that he had been there in 2015, which wasn't the case. But there's this kind of mythology around him. And I even had someone at one point send me an email and and tell me that he was had been spotted in the Isle of Wight. It was like, you know, it was like, a, and it just turns out that no, he was, you know, all this time he was at his home. And and I came across a phone number on a on a brochure that I that I found online, you know, and I, I called the number not thinking anything would kind of happen and left a message and he called me back. And and so, you know, I was very grateful that he called me back. We had a very long phone conversation. 
we then had a brief follow-up. I think, you know, he looked me up online and it was pretty clear, right, that we we had very strong disagreements politically. You know, and he called me back just to let me know that no matter what, I need to understand, right, that fascism and communism are the same thing. And then we had a subsequent conversation. And again, these weren't interviews, but they were opportunities for me to kind of, you know, it, I think it's important to hear someone's voice and to kind of draw you to the humanity of your subject. Oliver and others like him in the 1960s and 70s, in many instances, these were individuals who had had a pretty awful historical experience with totalitarianism, particularly fascism. And so, you know, he was the only, he was from Lithuania, he was Jewish, he was the only member of his family to survive the Holocaust. And so he was very attentive to the sort of social dynamics on the ground and how the world could really turn, you know, on a dime in a pretty awful way. And, you know, this is what he thought he saw happening in the 1960s. And so he wanted to get out. He needed an exit strategy and he needed a way to kind of protect himself. I mean, I, in the book, I try to differentiate these earlier projects of Michael Oliver from the contemporary projects coming out of Silicon Valley in one particular way. I mean, the, the Silicon Valley tech folk, I think, are much more, you know, I call them Promethean and, and sort of Nietzschean because I, I, it's less about a kind of experience with totalitarian politics. And it's much more about their desire to sort of bend reality to their will, because the idea is, is that they'll exit, they'll create a new country, and that that new country will somehow or another be so idealistic, you know, so so idealized and so good that it'll actually rebound back onto other existing nation states and force them to kind of change themselves. And when they say change themselves, they mean, you know, less regulation, lower taxes, you know, monuments to entrepreneurs and this kind of stuff. It was really interesting to me too, because, you know, obviously I study tech corporations. So I'm always hearing about these, you know, the Silicon Valley seasteading institute, these kind of, you know, libertarian exit projects that start in Silicon Valley from, you know, Peter Thiel's apocalypse bunkers in New Zealand, all these sorts of things. But it was, so it was really interesting then to to have in your book where you talk about like history of other libertarian exit projects, which look really, really similar. And yet, as you point out, like are embedded in something very different, right? Like you kind of have much more empathy for Michael Oliver coming from a totalitarian background to see like, oh, I, I understand why, like, I understand why this made sense to you. So, so I wonder then, you know, because Silicon Valley likes to pretend it's a place that doesn't have any history when <laughs> in reality, right, it's very bounded. But there doesn't seem to be a straight line between these these historic libertarian exit projects and the Silicon Valley libertarian exit projects, even though they look very similar. So I wonder, like, why when you were when you were researching it, is does is there a reason? Like, what's the intellectual history? that these exit projects now coalesce in Silicon Con Valley. Are they actually taking from the same history? Like, do they hear about it at all? Or, or you know, is it true that they came up with the idea independently, even if it's been done before? I think there's certainly, a, I would imagine, some familiarity with the history at, at some level. When I went to the, there's an organization called the Startup Societies Foundation, which is a kind of, their slogan is don't argue, build, right? Which, which, which to me is a kind of classic, I mean, it's a, it, you know, an entire essay could be written around that slogan because it's, it's very attractive as a slogan, right? It's like enough with politics. I mean, politics is about compromise, about reaching across the aisle nothing ever gets done. It's inefficient. You know, we're all just arguing. Can't we get along? America's more divided than it's ever been. It's got all the tropes, right? Buried in these three words. 
And of course, the problem is, is that, uh, first of all, you know, that's dictatorship, if you don't want to argue. Their dictatorships can be very efficient, but I don't think we want to live in one. But the other problem is, of course, is that as soon as you start to build, you have to argue because who's what if someone wants to put a billboard up in front of your living room window? I mean, what if they want to put a toxic sludge plant right next to you? Or what about runoff? What, you know, I mean, every single question about zoning and everything else requires arguing. And that's the nature of what it means to be social. And so it's this very deceptive kind of slogan. But the Startup Societies Foundation does this big umbrella. It's a, you know, they got lots of people involved in, in various kinds of projects. And they had this conference in 2017 in San Francisco that I attended to try to get a sense of what the movement looked like. And, you know, there was there was someone there that spoke, you know, she wrote a very good dissertation on on some of these projects, Isabel Simpson at McGill University. And she, you know, she spoke at the conference about Werner Stiefel and Stiefel's projects in the 1960s, very similar to Michael Oliver's this desire to create this kind of floating new country in the Caribbean called Atlantis. And, you know, I don't think that was the first time anybody had these things brought their, to their attention. I mean, but it's an important point in the sense that they definitely, I think, have some sense of these more historical projects. And any of them that had read sci-fi, you know, whether it be Gibson, Stevenson, Kim Stanley Robinson, but also earlier stuff, Jules Verne, and stuff coming out of the 1960s as well, then they would have been kind of familiar with some of these kinds of ideas. So there is that, I think there is that kind of thing. My interest in part in in ensuring that I went from the 1960s and 1970s with Michael Oliver and his backers to things like seasteading and free private cities in Honduras and things like this was twofold. One of the things that I wanted to make sure that I did was to be able to point out that in things like Honduras, the case of the free private cities in Honduras that I write about, it's not just Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. It's a lot of people who were central to the Reagan administration's Central American policy. In other words, war making. In other words, undermining the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, using Honduras as a base for contra low intensity warfare you know, devastating the economy of a place like El Salvador and illegally fomenting war in Central America and using Central America as a kind of what Greg Granick calls sort of empire's workshop. And so I wanted to ensure that 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 history could be seen there as well, that it's not just a kind of Silicon Valley universe, right? When you think about Peter Thiel's uh, Palantir, right? I mean, it's the, this enormous surveillance operation that, that that he basically rents out you know, to the U.S. government. And so that kind of connection, I think, is pretty fundamental. And the other connection, I think, that's, that's important to recognize, and, and there's a little bit of a similarity or overlap here at certain points in time, is the sort of, quote unquote, alt-right connection and the connection around racial politics in the United States and in the UK and its and its empire more generally. And so there's these strange convergences that just seem to recur between folks who identify at some level as libertarian and see themselves as kind of socially progressive, right? Drug legalization, polyamory, and so on and so forth, right? The burning man version of things. But then somehow or another intersects with what tend to be quite reactionary, often racist and violent kinds of movements as well. So you get, you know, Steve Bannon, for example, was the 
right? To, was the manager or something of Brock Pierce's company when he was doing this gaming stuff and making money off of Bitcoin. And then Pierce ended up in Puerto Rico as one of the Puertopians after Hurricane Maria, you know, with his disaster capitalist promises of Bitcoin salvation. I mean, so th there's this weird, you know, interconnection that, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was able to kind of untangle as well. It kind of leads on to my next question, which is, you know, around the term libertarian exit. So you subtitled the book, uh, you know, Libertarian Exit. And it's interesting because you you discuss it more, but sometimes, in the, you know, I'm writing something about space colonization right now and, and how it relates to libertarian exit. And sometimes I just want to say, you know, this is basically just colonialism, especially, you know, <laughs> you know, you look at like private corporate, you know, private corporations and individuals who are, of course, involved in colonial ventures, you know, it's very embedded in capitalism and also, but also to the way that like historically liberalism and liberal rhetoric intertwines with colonialism and colonial justifications. Even though, you know, in, in libertarian exit, the state doesn't exactly play the role that we expect it to play. But on the other hand, right, also reading the book, it it, it is striking the ways in which libertarian exiters don't articulate uh, an economic interest in the same way that we expect colonial ventures. So for them, you know, it's about escaping the regulatory state and tax havens, et cetera, et cetera, their own you know, the benefit to the sovereign individual, which is very different than, say, like colonial ventures, which were interested in extracting resources or labor, or even kind of more contemporary histories of, of corporations in Latin America. So thinking of the United Fruit Company, which has a very clear economic domination agenda. So, so, so I wonder if, like, how do you see the relationship between libertarian exit and colonialism? Do they have economic goals beyond being tax havens that they just perhaps aren't advertising as prominently. And and, and then I wonder too, then, what, how do you feel about the label of libertarian exit? Because I, I find myself torn when, when calling, referring to these things as libertarian exit, because if you call them colonialism, it, it does, it, it, it doesn't as obscure as much of the power structures and, you know, you can kind of get away with, people don't think about it as critically if you call it libertarian exit. You know, the interesting thing, I mean, and this always happens, right, is that once you finish a book and, and by finish, I mean, you know, the proofs are done and it's in production and then it comes out. There's a way in which you're able to step back from it and and think about all the kinds of, you know, conversations that you weren't quite having concretely in your head because you were sort of buried in it. You know, one of the things that I've come to realize in finishing the book is that exit is not about exit, <laughs> Right. That in fact, exit is, and I, you know, I should probably sort of write something about this that, you know, we could just get rid of the term exit on the one hand, but maybe the other way to think about it is exit as not exit. And so what I mean by this is it really is a kind of for a next stage, a further embedding of, you know, primitive accumulation, dispossession, capitalism at a kind of, you know, hyper level that these are individuals that are not looking to be necessarily autarkic, right? They want to be linked up in some sense to things like Silicon Valley. You know, they want all the possibilities of the kinds of things that they're already doing to continue in some sense, but they're not necessarily, you're correct in the sense that they're not necessarily, it's not colonialism on in, a kind of, in, in the same way that we think about it as a kind of extractive presence at some level. But having said that, right, I mean, I think 
some of the folks involved in this movement currently are kind of clear about this, right? They basically say, you know, part of the reason we want to experiment with things like seasteading and so on and so forth is, you know, let a thousand nations bloom, right? I mean, there's this sort of rhetoric about we're just experimenting. We're just trying new things out. Why not? What's wrong with that? Why are you giving us so much grief? And of course, the flip side of that, of course, is that you're, 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 you're planting in other people's gardens, right? I mean, with, with pretty bad implications and effects, right? Just assuming that you can colonize a seamount in the ocean, for example. So, yes, but I, I agree there is a kind of, or these are very colonial in many ways. And so I don't want exit to obscure that. And I want it, but at the same time, right, what I'm kind of interested in is the, is the way in which their argument about the state, right, sort of yields this, this idea of leaving what they understand to be our contemporary nation state paradigm and creating something slightly different from that, that isn't exactly, you know, excised out of it, right, in some way. Oliver, you know, Oliver was very interesting on this point. He, when the project he was involved in in the Bahamas, right, so he had three projects that I looked at. One is the the Minerva reefs, which are in between Tonga and, and Fiji and New Zealand. One is in Abaco, the, which is two islands in the Bahamas. And then the last project was in the New Hebrides, which is now Vanuatu. He was very clear when it came to Abaco that, that this was not going to be what he called a banana republic, that this was a moral experiment. And, and in many respects, it wasn't, you know, it is very, if people wanted to hide their money, there are many ways to hide your money and avoid taxes. I mean, and, you know, the Cayman Islands are waiting, Panama, Fonseca, accounting company. I mean, there's multiple, you can hire an att- multiple attorneys to hide your money. So you don't really need to kind of do, undertake these enormously laborious uh, projects of essentially trying to create a new country. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it, it, it it's incredibly revealing in the book, I think, just how difficult it is to try to do something like this you're always going to run up against all kinds of problems and the one place that sort of kind of sort of survived right was sea land and even sea land was just riddled with complicated things and shootouts and you know passport problems and so forth and so oliver was like it's a moral experiment right and and for him the idea of morality here which i think is also repeated by you know, the free private city folk and the seasteaders and the like is that the basis of freedom is the market and the ability to basically opt in and opt out, right? So you should be opt in and opt out is not just, you know, a a practice that or something that facilitates you finding freedom. It actually is the basis of kind of freedom itself that you opt in and opt out of the communities that you want to live in. And it sounds, you know, again, it's one of these things like don't argue bill that sounds very nice, but of course, it's enormous. The, the, the issue that's enormously difficult is that, is that even in the case of free private cities or charter cities on Honduras or Hong Kong or all, you know, special economic zones, all these kinds of places that champion themselves as free spaces. I mean, they all have migratory controls. They all have migratory controls. And so and in some form or another, that this is the kind of complication one of the complications that Oliver and others would confront is how do you deal with opt in and opt out? And even Oliver himself, you know, it, he wrote a newsletter called the Capitalist Country Newsletter. And at some point, you know, so he laid out, let me just make this clear for readers. He laid out in his new constitution for a new country, basically that you would go to this new country and you had two things you could do, two ways to participate. You could either be a settler. So you pay three grand, you get an acre of land and you go to wherever the new country is and you settle and you help create this new space. 
or you could be an investor, right? So you could use it as a form of speculation. You could invest and have a kind of share in in this kind of holding in this kind of company state, if you want to call it that. But you didn't have to move there and settle, right? So here's so here you have Oliver. He lays out, right? You can be a settler or you can be a colonist. But then he writes in the Capitalist Country newsletter. Clearly, some people are confused, and so we don't want collectivists or nihilists or criminals. So even there, immediately, right, freedom gets constrained, right? The moral experiment of opt-in, opt-out is already now. The monarch has declared, right? And the monarch has dictated that no nihilists, no collectivists, and no criminals. And so it this, you know, it's fascinating how the 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 sort of way in which it gets walked back and starts to very quickly look like, you know, a, a gated community that wants to have a certain kind of a certain kind of sovereignty. I would say that in many respects, these are very much forms of colonization. If you look at the case of Honduras now, this is, you know, it, it's it's very base kind of colonialism at some level. They're not, like you said, they're not classic colonialism in terms of what how they're going to make their money and extraction of resources and control of territory and so forth. But in many instances, what they're looking to do is set up kind of small like-minded communities that have enormous amount of sovereignty and an enormous amount of latitude in terms of how they operate. And these places will often be, you know, I think they're aspiring to be little sort of territorial hubs where, where people can, can actually meet up and stay and have a, have an apartment and things like this, or have an office out of which they operate and, you know, have a plaque on the door and so on and so forth that allows them to bypass different kinds of regulatory paradigms and so forth. But, but these would be, these kinds of spaces where they could continue to operate in the financial sector, in the tech sector, and so forth. And, you know, it doesn't sell well with a glossy brochure, you know, to say, come stay at our timeshare, you know, in Honduras. But it does sell well to say, you know, future cities, development, incorporated, sovereign, libertarian, you know. So there's a sales pitch to this as well, right? I really appreciated this in the book. You talk a bit about the distinct history of American libertarianism and how that needs to be separated from the history of anarchism. It, it is really striking, as you kind of touched on in your last point, about how, you know, they're using this rhetoric of freedom, but then the, these spaces are very dictatorial. So you see that with, like, the corporations, you know, that these these libertarian guys have created. And Peter Thiel is like, ah, I believe in libertarianism. And then yet every corporation he's involved in looks like a mini monarchy. It was quite funny in the book when I think Michael Oliver, I think he's talking about Minerva and they're discussing rule. And he says, no, no, I, I, I will rule it. So, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like how uh, political rule is, is imagined within the spaces and, 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 and do you think of them? I, the, other, the other question is like, do you think of them as distinct from corporate rule, like company towns? Yeah. It- you know, it's a good question. I mean, the it, it, it's fascinating how thin the thinking was, as far as I can tell, on how these things would operate. And I think part of the reason for that thinness is a recognition very quickly that if you tried to explain it all out front, you would back yourself into a pretty complicated corner. And at some level, I think there is a sort of willful experimentation embedded in how these things were initially put together. In other words, that that some of this stuff was going to be worked out through the actual practice 
rather than in advance. And so, you know, you have things like, I mean, just to give you listeners an example from the book, I mean, Michael Oliver's new constitution, one of the things that he was trying to figure out is if everything's going to be run through market relations, right? And the idea, that's the basic idea, right? The idea is that these are, these are like common interest developments, perhaps, right? It's a, or a homeowners association, it's a contract. So you don't really, it's not about voting, you vote with your, with your feet, if you don't like the community, then you leave. But it's not like, you know, the community gets together and votes and changes things per se. I mean, that could be one article in the contract, but it, it doesn't have to be. Uh, and so it's all contractual. And most of it is run through kind of you know, what they would call governing services. And so like, just like municipalities in parts of the United States don't cover fire and wastewater and things like this, but contract out to private companies. This would all be run through private companies, including policing. But it gets complicated because Oliver then had to say, okay, you know, you choose what we would now call the suite, right? The suite of services that you would like and and you buy into those, right? But then, you know, he had to answer a question, which is what if someone decides they don't want to buy into the police protection in the community, but then when they are being assaulted on the street, the police intervene, you know, and, and the thing was is that the police would, would need to intervene, right? If someone's being assaulted in the street, but then the person after the fact would have to, right, reimburse the police service for that service they provided. And so very quickly, right, it gets complicated with, you know, what, what can you contract? What can you, what can you remove yourself from? What happens when all these things are running, run through these kinds of contractual services relations and so on and so forth. But everything is driven through this kind of governing services paradigm. The, the general political ideology at work is, is, is essentially one in which government is seen as necessary, but it needs to be radically limited, right? And so there's a lot of debates amongst the libertarians themselves around what this might look like. Someone like Murray Rothbard, sort of godfather of U.S. libertarianism, for many years insisted that everything be run through contract, including national defense and so on and so forth. And then he later, you know, as, as was the case with many of these individuals, he took a, a much more reactionary turn and, and sort of affiliated himself with Pat Buchanan and the sort of paleo conservatism of the 80s and the 90s and was totally fine with the police, you know, being sicked on his political enemies. And then, you know, you have you have others like Rand and Hayek, Robert Nozick, a, a philosopher who, you know, in 1974 wrote along what he I think was intended as a kind of rebuttal to Rawls's theory of justice. You know, and for Nozick, it was he was having this internal argument with libertarianism in his head and felt like he kept losing the argument. And so he sort of embraced it in this book. But it was about this kind of idea of a night watchman or minimalist state. And so the state needs to be limited to the absolute bare bones of what it needs to do to protect one individual from another individual. And so I, one of the things I try to point out in the book is that when they talk about a minimalist state, which is what most of them ultimately, where they all sort of end up at some form or another, they're not talking about its size. They're just talking about what functions it can undertake. And this generally tends to be a national defense, so a military protection of the individual from direct violence. So that means a police force and then protection of the property owning individual from fraud and breach of contract. And that means a judiciary and a patent office and things like this. 
that's, you know, that's a huge state. That's a very big state you're talking about right there. And so it's it's a minimalist state in terms of the range of its functions, but it's not minim- we should not mistake that minimalism for meaning a small state. And I, so that's generally the kind of idea that they have. They don't there, there's no discussion about whether or not they're going to be autarkic, you know, and they're going to you know, there's no it's not like you're reading a manifesto for an eco village, right, or a green commune that there's no real discussion about i mean the seasteaders do this the seasteaders talk about well we're gonna you know solar panels and we're gonna grow our fruits and vegetables on the top of the seastead and things like this but generally i mean when you look at a lot of the literature there it's not that there's going to be all different kinds of trade connections linkages they're completely embedded in the world of international trade finance speculation and and so on so they're not intended to be uh, autarkic in that sense it is so funny the the discussion around the protection societies. It does seem like a Robert Nozick's book in real time, figuring out like arguing your way to a larger and larger state. I don't know if you've read A Libertarian Walks into a Bear about the <laughs> the community in New Hampshire that wanted to be was taken over as a libertarian experiment and then experienced an influx of bears and they were so ideologically opposed to any state function that they couldn't handle the the bear invasion you know you mentioned nozick and a couple of other figures and you know obviously these people are used both as examples of libertarian thinkers as well as neoliberal thinkers so i think the the big one of the academic articles on seasteading vote with your feet talks about how there's this libertarian element to, to the seasteading institute but also neoliberal argument which which you've talked about in in terms of like subjecting the state to the logic of the market right where states now need to compete for citizens the way that you know you would in a market society so I wonder then in thinking about neoliberalism and libertarian and the libertarianism and the various figures, um, like how how can, can can we differentiate them? How do you tear them, take them apart? You know, is there some some of the tenets when you think about libertarianism, and neoliberalism, they seem quite contradictory in certain senses. Right. So I wonder, is there an ideological consistency between the two? Can you sort of take them apart? And then how how much of the current moment, because, you know, you're looking at this broader history of libertarian exit, how much of like what has developed can be attributed to, you know, the neoliberal era? It is neoliberalism somehow distinct in how these communities are are developing? So part of the, you know, part of the impetus initially with this project as well was in part because I've been teaching on the history of anarchism for a number of years. And my previous book on Chile was about, you know, young anarchists in the 19-teens and the 1920s who were persecuted by the Chilean state. And, you know, and then, of course, anarchist politics, left anarchist politics in Chile has been absolutely central to the transformations that have been taking place in Chile over the past two decades, starting in 2001 and 2006 with the Penguin Revolution, 2011, the insurgencies, 2019, the Estadio Social. So, Part of what my interest was, was reminding my own students, you know, and reminding readers that we're not talking about anarchism here. And it seems, unfortunately, that we still have to do this because if you've watched the HBO Max series, The Anarchists, you know, it's, it's, I'm, you know, it's a fascinating documentary, but it's a, appalling just the, the language of anarchism that they appropriate in that documentary. I mean, we're really talking about these kinds of market authoritarians or market libertarians who I'm writing about, right? These are people who are hyper-capitalists. They made a bundle off of the explosion in the value of Bitcoin 
and you know they're down in Acapulco and you watch the documentary talk about colonization you would never other than the fact that every once in a while the camera shows Acapulco Bay because it's pretty you would never know you're in Mexico right it's completely ignorant of Mexican politics of the struggles of Mexican people and poor people in Acapulco and elsewhere and so it's incredibly frustrating right but it's all about you know they call themselves you know the anarchists and so forth and 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 they're not and so part of the impetus of this was to very early on try to work through intellectually and politically some of those questions. And so when you look at, you know, anarchist communities that are trying to kind of avoid the state, whether it be squats, whether it be communes, whether it be, you know, all different kinds, you know, think about take back the land and Umoja and Miami back in 2006 and 2007, or you think about the whole range, right, of, of what what some have written about as exile communities, those are distinct from what I'm talking about. And so the exit communities I talk about, like I mentioned earlier, I feel like are sort of embedded in, deeply embedded in the capitalist project. And in some sense are kind of, I hate to call them a vanguard, but they are kind of in some ways, I think, at the forefront of trying to make these things, you know, these these ultra privatized projects, trying to make them palatable, trying to make them sexy, uh, trying to make them cool. And so that's why you get, you know, the seasteading logo is Burning Man on the high seas, right? So it's like, you know, it's Burning Man, you know, it's like it's polyamory, it's drug use, it's self-expression, it's arts, it's the Nevada desert, it's leave no trace, take in, take out, you know, so it has a certain kind of, you know, vibe to it that I think is meant to be very appealing. It's just, you know, it's sort of Ayn Rand 2.0 or something, in, in which you can appeal to the sort of t- teen boy aspect of Ayn Rand and at the same time find a way to accommodate, you can find a way to accommodate the kind of tech sensibility, right, about themselves. The neoliberal libertarian aspect of this, I mean, at a certain point, you know, in the book, I, I basically use a, what I call a big tent definition of libertarianism. I locate people like Friedman and Hayek at one end of the libertarian spectrum. You know, Ayn Rand rejected the, the idea of libertarianism and refused to be uh, labeled as such. And in fact, had no, absolutely no patience uh, for Hayek and no patience for Rothbard. And of course, Rothbard had no patience for her. He thought she was a little totalitarian. And she even said at some point, I don't remember who she said this to, but at some point she said, you know, people living on the ocean, that's crazy. I mean, you know, so this this is weird, you know, so they, they, there's a lot of variation between their thinking, and I don't want to conflate them all into the same thing, but I do see them occupying a general kind of world that has a lot in common. And my own conclusion in some ways in the book is that a lot of the sort of libertarian stuff that we're, that, that I'm tracking and that you're writing about and that people are interested in is the sort of next logical stage of the so-called neoliberal revolution of the of the 70s and the 80s. I think the 80s was a you know a moment of intensification on so many levels and the ability to kind of take advantage ideologically and politically and economically of some of the stressors and the strains politically and economically but you already had you know Chile's radical shock therapy the Chicago boys and Milton Friedman and the sort of radical privatization of Chile's economy and in, in some ways, I see these libertarian projects as the next logical move. And the state itself has become fodder for a lot of these projects. I mean, the huge growth of Fairfax County in Northern Virginia is 
the growth connected to the military industrial complex. So, I mean, it's Fairfax County is the the seat of of essentially private contracting vis-a-vis the military, right? Private contractors with weapons out, outnumbered military personnel in Iraq and Afghanistan for quite some time. And these are these are places where I think in some ways, right, the, the state, what we traditionally, you know, SpaceX and NASA, you know, all of these things that were for so long the purview of the state and public money have now become you know, increasingly targeted, I think, by private interests. But the irony, of course, is that they're targeted by private interests who, again, are using public money. I mean, how much money did SpaceX get out of public coffers? Billions. And so there's this kind of false dichotomy between the public and the private that I think, you know, I find very frustrating. I'm not a specialist in neoliberalism, so it's kind of a, you know, I I was out on a limb a little bit. But for me, at least, I wanted to make sure that I had some sense of the, the range of these individuals thinking. And, and I wanted to not, in some sense, allow the libertarians to separate themselves from the neoliberals. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to sort of forcibly rope them back to something that they don't necessarily want to see themselves as associated with in some form. And I think it's important to kind of not allow them that kind of escape hatch. So I wonder then, what is the role of currency in these libertarian exit projects? So I think that you talked about, I think it was for Minerva that Michael Oliver minted a coin, but it was kind of, it seems kind of more symbolic than as a genuine attempt to disrupt state control over currency. And you don't, I don't think you talk about cryptocurrency in the book, but I was also struck by some of, the, you know, the discussion you had about these libertarian exit ideas and how it intersects with sort of the the discussions among the original cryptocurrency communities about, you know, the gold standard and the way that the state might manipulate currency and, and money and monetary supplies. And but it also seems to me and then it goes back to, you know, the the territory question at the heart of your book, which is that, you know, thinking about. So, for instance, the recent FTX cryptocurrency collapse. It's very clear the U.S. government could have chosen to regulate these currencies as assets, but didn't. And, you know, currently the FTX founders and and, and main kind of guys are, are hiding in the Bahamas, trying desperately to find some place in the world where they won't be extradited by the U.S. and, and can't. So so I wonder then, does, does currency come up more than kind of symbolically like monetary policy come up in, in discussion of these pro? projects or is it about territorial escape yeah you know so currency came up in some ways i mean there's not a so i guess there's a number of different things right so one of the people who was experimenting in the 1960s with wanting to build a, a what he called a new atlantis right so atlantis you know for your listeners i mean the 1960s in the united states is often thought of as the age of aquarius right this sort of famous song right from from hair from the broadway show hair and you know, associated with the kind of, you know, to tune out, drop out, tune in, drop out. And so, but it's more the age of Atlantis. I think if you look at the libertarian explosion that takes place in the 1960s and Atlantis is this kind of touch point, right? I think even at some point, a brand called Galt's Gulch or sort of Atlantis in the Rockies. I'm trying to remember if she said it or someone said it about her work. So, you know, Lester Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway's younger brother set up this Atlantis kind of new country off the coast of Jamaica and immediately created stamps and created currency. And the currency was based on shells and, you know, available to it. 
And I mean, it was it was meant to be a sort of hokey kind of experiment, but it's also very revealing. But the big thing, I mean, you're right. The big thing in the 1960s was gold, right? So Michael Oliver himself, part of where his wealth came from was owning, uh, operating a coin exchange, right? There were rules around whether or not you could buy and sell gold and silver and so forth. And so gold went up in value substantially in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And a lot of the people who are so-called gold bugs who were super worried about monetary policy and, you know, after World War II and Bretton Woods and, and all these kinds of things were very, you know, they were concerned. And so they were basically saying, you know, you need to put your money into gold and classic. Now we think of it as a caricature of libertarianism, but at the time it was like a big, you know, it was a big thing. They were going on the Phil Donahue show to talk about this and, and so forth. And of course, crypto is very similar. And there is a lot of parallels between the fifties and the sixties. And now there's the monetary policy, which, uh, which I'll come back to in just a minute. Right. So gold, then crypto now, these disruptive things and ways to, you know, secure your wealth and so forth. There's also the ecological question. So now we're dealing with, you know, catastrophic climate change. The seasteaders sell themselves as sort of, you know, the advanced guard of cool resiliency and sustainability and things like this. And very problematically, I mean, if you look beyond the surface, you'll see very quickly all the problems with what they're trying to sell. But the 1960s, you know, it was Garrett Hardin's tragedy of the commons, the Aralex population bomb, Dune, right, was serialized starting in 1963, very apocalyptic vision of the future with no water. Soylent Green came out in 1973, you know, about about overpopulation and food sources. And that was based on a book published in 1964. There's Neville Shoots on the Beach about nuclear fallout and the climate, right, bringing a nuclear winter to Australia and people waiting to die. You know, and sometimes it feels like we're in a slow motion, you know, on version of on the beach with catastrophic climate change. So there's a lot of these kinds of parallels and monetary policy and monetary and money was a big one as well in the 1960s. And then, you know, yeah, the crypto. So I don't get into crypto a lot in the book, but clearly this is part and parcel of a lot of these projects. The Seasteaders, when the Seasteading Institute started to run into a lot of the problems that I think most people would have predicted they were going to run into, right? So not just legal issues around the high seas, not just engineering issues, but actually labor costs, you know, what, I mean, the labor costs, if you're way out in the middle of the ocean are going to be extraordinary. And then they tried to do this project in Tahiti and that didn't go well for, I think for anybody who lives on an island and wants to look out at the horizon, doesn't want to see, you know, a billionaire platform. So they initially, their first response was to issue a cryptocurrency, Varian, to try to raise money. And it's a kind of, you know, it's almost humorous how predictable, right, their schemes were to kind of keep the money coming in to keep the Seasteading Institute operating. They have to come up with new schemes. They have to come up with new things to keep attracting people to 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 give and issuing making a sort of initial coin offering or trying to raise interest in a cryptocurrency seems to be one of those strategies the hurricane maria right in puerto rico after 2017 very famously right was the the so-called protopians arrived brock pierce and a variety of other people there's a there's a long sort of cover story about brock pierce and rolling stone that 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 covers this very well. El Salvador has adopted Bitcoin as an official currency. You know, you can go, you can go on and on. It's so it's it's very much 
a kind of part of this idea of disrupting government as the way we understand it and circumventing all the various kinds of ways in which we're constrained and we're controlled uh, and so forth. Now, the last thing I'll say about the, the, the earlier project is there's not a lot of talk about monetary policy. And so it's uh, in so many ways, the, the projects are so driven by the the sort of analog world, right? Not the digital, but the sort of that they're in. And what I mean by this is just classic property territory sovereignty, right? That's really what it's about. Finding a space to, in some sense, get out without necessarily right disconnecting from the broader the broader structure of things because you would not be able to disconnect in that way. Michael Oliver issued coins both for Minerva and for Vanuatu, the Vemarana Federation. He issued a coin for that as well. I, I'm trying to remember, I think it's called the Letchworth Mint that actually minted the coins. I mean these were these were fundraising, right? These were mechanisms to kind of fundraise. So they were they were promotional and 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 the like, but they were, you know, intended to kind of fundraise. And the last thing I'll mention just for your listeners is look up Satoshi Island in Vanuatu, and you'll get a sense of what these gimmicks, and they are gimmicks, I'll say, look like. I mean, Satoshi Island, the, the way it's marketed and what it can actually be and what it actually does and how it relates to the rest of Vanuatu is very different than how it's marketed. Yeah, I guess the the second question about it is, is you know, part of what these projects are doing is either like taking over territory or creating territory. And I find myself kind of baffled by the role of territory in their minds. You have an amazing quote, I highlighted it like five or six times I thought was so good, which is you kind of mentioned it, that these, these folks have access to the best tax accountants in the world if they truly wanted to escape the power of the state. And yet they're involved with these elaborate territorializing projects. But, you know, creating new territory doesn't seem to protect you from the power of the state in any meaningful way. You know, if the United States wants to invade your artificial island, they can, you know, that's not really going to stop them from doing it. So I wonder, like, is it just, you know, a misunderstanding, or not a misunderstanding, but just like a really big belief in that sovereignty as territory, people, property, paradigm like what what does the role of territory and territorialization reveal about these projects and how they're envisioning politics i do you know i do think there's something you know deeply embedded about what it means to have your own you know territory and i can't explain that and and i'm not quite sure how to make sense of it you're right i mean even the even the projects like you know the, the Jefferson County Secessionist Project in Northern California, right up by Shasta. I'm not. It's hard to understand what secession would, what it would mean, what it would yield, what it would do. It. I mean, one of the things I try to point out is that in the 1980s, a lot of these projects stop. A lot of these kind of exit projects tend to come to a halt. And the the explanation I give, which you know is somewhat tentative and not fully fleshed out, is that. You didn't have to territorially exit. And it's not clear that you had to territorially exit before, but clearly with the Reagan and the Thatcher revolutions, you can just socially secede. I mean, you know, all of the all of the kinds of things that were irritating people in the 60s and 70s in terms of their wealth and in terms of public monies and finances and New York City going broke and and so on and so forth. I mean, these are these are things that in the 1980s, right, people are finding all different kinds of ways to 
radically reduce their uh, tax burden. They've got, you know, there's changes in banking regulations. There's ways in which their communities are, are sort of recomposing them selves to avoid the worst aspects of urban blights and, and and so forth. And so there's a real kind of transformation that that takes place. And I think that's why in part some you know, a lot of these projects kind of fade for a while. But then they come back in the in the 90s. Oliver himself is involved in one in the 90s with a, a Romanian economist named Stefan Mandel, who some of your listeners might be familiar with from a very interesting Planet Money piece that was done a few years ago about him. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it is the this obsession with territory. I mean, in some instances, right, someone like Mitchell Werbel, who I talk about, who was involved in the Bahamas project, it's clear what he wants, right? He needs a piece of territory where he can put up a manufacturing plant to make weapons. And he's, you know, he's actively searching around to kind of do that. But in other instances, it's not, you know, it's not entirely clear. So another another kind of question I was left with is, or, you know, kind of struck by with these communities is this the role of gender. So one of the things seems to be like almost all of the exiters, both in historic and contemporary projects are men. And so not only are they kind of like the ideas of of men, but they also seem very male exclusive in the communities they attempt to create. So there's, I think it was the uh, N plus one uh, feature on the Seasteading Institute, where this journalist goes to these seastead communities and is struck by how it's just all boys on these floating ocean colonies. So you mentioned it in the book, but I was thinking of it as well about Wendy Brown's critique of neoliberalism as you know being very unable to resolve whether the site of freedom in the market is the individual or in the family. So I wonder how. Did gender get talked about in these these communities? Are they thinking about importing women or reproducing the heteronormative family later? Or, you know, <laughs> the contemporary case, maybe they're just thinking about engineering cyborgs to deal with the problems of reproduction. But but does gender come up at all or or the the, the family as as the sort of anchor of, of the community or society life? So one of the things that was interesting to me was in 2017, when I went to this Startup Societies Foundation conference, right, that was at City College of San Francisco, which is some some heavy irony there. It, I expected what Atusa experienced when she went to the seasteading thing. I expected, you know, I expected just like men, you know. And I was surprised, actually, I would say the split was probably 40-60, female to male. There were many more women there than than I had expected. And I found that to be a bit of a surprise. And, you know, also, I I think it's fair to say that some of the more vehement speakers that I listened to over the course of a few days at that event were, were from women as well. And so it, there was something interesting about that and something kind of revealing that, you know, I've been thinking about. In the projects themselves that I look at, I mean, what's, Michael Oliver had a family. Right. I mean, he had a wife and he had children. They never come up in any of his material. Right. And it's a fascinating absence. It, it's, you know, he he is the sort of the, the kind of guru setting these things up and he's setting them, them up. And we have no indication in any of his work that there's any kind of family input into this, like what his family thinks of it, the dialogues, like is the whole family going to move? And so, you know, that's just one absence of many. There are certain instances, you know, where you have 
you know, Ralph McMullen, who, who was the first secretary of state for the Minerva project, right, but never really actually got off the ocean or got off the ground. His wife was tasked with being the sort of person managing the headquarters in Miami for the Bahamas project. So you have these moments, right, where they come in, but it's it's heavily, heavily men. And it's heavily men in a kind of hyper-masculinized way. So the Bahamas project I talk about is, you know, it, it's almost James Bondy. I mean, you've got this guy, Mitchell Werbel, who makes silencers for the deadliest pistol at the time, the Ingram Mac 10. I mean, Werbel is like, you know, a caricature of a caricature of a man. You know, I mean, the way he dresses, he's got this mustache that's like this giant piece of militarized topiary on his face. He's all involved with guns. He smokes, you know, he's heavy smoker of cigarettes, heavy smoker of cigars, heavy drinker. He's just this, there's a kind of level of absurdity to it and almost self-parody. It's so weird. You know, and he gets photographed with a girlfriend, but he's married. And so there is a, there's, there is a kind of a libertarian boys ethos, I think, to a lot of these projects that also are very connected to a kind of very masculinity coming out of World War II in the 1960s and 70s. Clearly, the, the again, the sort of maleness of things like Soldier of Fortune magazine in Vietnam. And this, I think, this is not something that I talk about very much in the book, but the, the, the sort of, what's the best way to put it? The kind of male ethos of bonding in wartime around Vietnam. And then the idea, the, you know, the classic idea of betrayal with Vietnam by wimpy men, right? Reagan said Kennedy didn't stand up, right, when he should have in Vietnam or Bay of Pigs. And, you know, so Reagan, the whole the whole thing was to kind of resurrect this heroic patriotic masculinity, right, and to kind of, you know, get past the malaise and the wimpiness of Carter and Kennedy. And, you know, he sort of really used that. And it's not surprising that you end up with Rambo and First Blood and Stallone and all the, you know, you look at the, movies of the early and mid 1980s that tap into this so it's got you know i think it's it's not just a question of maleness it's a it's also this kind of hyper masculinized militarized maleness here as well even the journalist who covers a lot of the projects that I look at andrew st george super fascinating character really really interesting guy and a, a journalist that in some ways i think was way ahead of his time in terms of, of, of the things he was able to see you know, he spent his time hanging out after, after being friends with Che and Castro for a long time. He ends up hanging out with anti-Castro Cubans. And the photographs of them, right, you know, they're all like posing on on these boats and stuff with their shirts like undone, like down to their belt buckles. And, you know, it's like, again, it's it's got this very sort of there's almost a kind of homoeroticness, right, to their to their kind of posing and, and the sort of time they're all spending together. And they're all men. So there's something there. And. And the contemporary projects, again, very, you know, the, the seasteaders talk about single family dwellings, you know, and so there is a kind of family thing and, you know, the rhetoric comes in and out. There's, but then there's also Patrick Friedman, right, who's involved with the Seasteading Institute and started Free, Free Cities Development Incorporated, Future Cities Development Incorporated. You know, he was very sort of outspoken in the, there was a marriage announcement in the New York Times when he got married. And, you know, they're very outspoken about, you know, polyamory. And so there's a kind of also critique 
that they want to generate about the kind of quote unquote traditional heteronormative family that I think is is part of their libertarian argument. I mean, that's a critique of the, you know, the sort of quote unquote traditional hetero family, but you don't see a lot in there related to questions of, you know, transness, right? Queerness. And and that's, you know, I think that's interesting as well. But, you know, one of the one of the things that I found really revealing and really important, Adam Curtis's documentary trilogy, all, all watched over by Machines of Loving Grace. I think one of the things that he shows really well and and talks about, you know, for a good like 10 minute period in the in one of the documentaries is the way in which communes in Northern California, some of the communes in Northern California, which aspire to these ideals, right, of individual liberty, re- really radically reproduced kind of hypermasculine authority. Right. So the idea that you couldn't make alliances in the community around certain kinds of things, in other words, politics, right? So you couldn't make alliances and, and so on and so forth, but everybody had to kind of speak as an individual, right? And so forth, rather than making blocks and things like this, you know, and, and what he what he points out in his documentary, and Fred Turner might also point this out in his book, is essentially what this did is reproduce the sort of loudest voices of two men in the community in which they became effectively super domineering super bullying yeah so there's kind of, yeah there's a lot of sort of questions in there and things to and things to follow one of the things that that you also know in the book that i found like very very telling obviously it's called libertarian exit from decolonization to the digital age is that these exit projects almost always happen in places that are emerging from colonialism or are in other ways like have have been vulnerable to because of other historic forms of oppression. So I wonder, you know, what are some of the different ways that those communities have resisted the exiting projects when they do, you know, kind of attempt to exit on into somebody else's garden, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, another thing that I realized, you know, after finishing the book and sort of thinking about it in much broader terms is that I don't want to say there's a certain conservatism to it, but there's certainly, certainly a willingness to to recognize the importance of the state, you know, in, in, in some ways. I mean, there's a kind of defense of, of the state at some level, I think in the book implicitly, it's really at kind of state level, right? That a lot of the resistance takes place. So in the case of the Minerva reefs, you know, the King of Tonga, right. And Tonga was never, you know, formally entirely colonized by the British, but it did it did have this kind of colonial relationship with the British. The King of Tonga essentially asserts political rights to the reefs, even though they don't they don't exist within the political territorial limits of the archipelago. And he gets the support of neighboring archipelagos like Fiji. And Fiji and Tonga have been in conflict over the Minerva reefs for a long time. But Fiji, Nauru, and other island nations in the Southwest Pacific all back Tonga briefly in its opposition to the Minerva Reefs in 1972. And the reason is they collectively recognized that to not do so would open up the possibilities of an enormous kind of ocean reef rush at some level by, you know, effectively these distant colonizers. And so at one level, there's this collective recognition that I think is very, very interesting and something I would like to research more because I am curious about how much or how little something like the Minerva Project shaped the UN Commission on the Laws of the Seas and its 
discussion about archipelagic uh, territorial rights, which were getting worked out in the 1970s for the 1982-1983 agreements. So there's that kind of response. In the Bahamas, the response is, is a little bit different. The Bahamas is decolonizing in the schedule for independence in 1973. And, you know, the, the inhabitants of Abaco, which is part of the Bahamas, basically were old British loyalists all the way back from the American Revolutionary War. And they had fled and gone to Abaco. And, you know, they were sort of hyper-patriotic even in the 1970s. And I have some choice quotes about how hyper-patriotic they were. And uh, they wanted to stay a part of the United Kingdom. They didn't want to become, they didn't want to stay part of the Bahamas when the Bahamas came independent. There were a variety of reasons for this. One of them had to do with race. You know, I mean, it was clear that the government that was going to come into power in the Bahamas was going to be almost entirely black. And there was clearly right, racist resistance to this on, on Abaco. And so that was a case in which there was this effort to, on the part of people associated with Oliver and Oliver himself to kind of foment a secessionist rebellion or to insinuate themselves into a secessionist rebellion. And the resistance there is quite interesting. You have both on Abaco itself, people who increasingly realize what secession might entail, and they don't want that, the, the sort of violent insurrectionist version of secession. And then you also you know, have you have people who ultimately decide that they can make peace with the possibility of being part of the Bahamas and that they don't want, right, they don't want this kind of influence coming from outside, right, and setting up something that's entirely, right, in other words, not in control of their own destiny. It's also, the, the project also flounders because the FBI is investigating Werbel and Oliver for potential, you know, illegal intervention in the foreign affairs of another state. Vanuatu, you know, the resistance there is quite interesting. I mean, this is probably the place where the, it's the most robust argument, I think, in the book about what's happening locally. And so there you have this very complicated triangle between the existing colonizers, the French and the British, who don't get along about much, except for the fact that they don't like Americans. You have Americans who are trying to speculate on land, many of them based out of Hawaii. But then you have internally in the New Hebrides, anti-colonial movements that in some sense are, are kind of allied early on, but then split uh, over the course of the 1970s. And so one of the splits in the anti-colonial movement affiliates itself with Oliver and his backers, and they essentially launch a rebellion to try to secede and create a kind of confederation. I mean, it's a very interesting story because, you know, the in, when it comes to decolonization, I mean, the, the common assumption is that, you know, places decolonize and they become nation states. But that didn't have to be the case. There were lots of alternative possibilities that were put forth around forms of confederation, forms of federation, you know, all different kinds of things in between colony and nation state. And so even this anti-colonial movement in, in Vanuatu is one where you have... The person who allies, Jimmy Stevens, the chief who allies with Michael Oliver and his backers, is effectively, you know, trying to set up a kind of confederation, right? He calls the the colonial structure of the archipelago kind of fake, right? And at some level, he's he's not wrong. And so he wants to set up this kind of confederation and to not have the entire archipelago come under the control of the New Hebrides National Party, which is mostly uh, Anglophone. 
And, and so it gets very complicated, and the, but it's important because, you know, part of what I really, really wanted to do in the book was spend a lot of time writing about the social histories and political histories of places where these experiments took place, because how this, these experiments unfolded and why they floundered and didn't go anywhere and so forth is not just about the limitations on, you know, the libertarian imagination or the libertarian, you know, new constitution for a new country and whether or not it talked about this thing or that thing. A lot of it really has to do with the fact that that what was happening on the ground, the, the political activities, the social activities, the cultural sort of aspirations of people in places trying to decolonize, right? I mean, prevented these things from coming to fruition in very sort of active, direct ways. I mentioned that in, in Vanuatu, Michael Oliver's name is very, very well known still to this day. And some people revile him and some people revere him, but but... You know, a lot of the people I talked to when I was in Vanuatu, they all know his name. He encapsulates so, so many of the kind of arguments and ideas that were that, that were being generated, right, around thinking about, you know, political life after colonial rule, thinking about how land is going to be structured, thinking about development, thinking about, you know, the the... The structural conditions within which the local population lives. I mean, there's you know there's a lot of sort of rhetoric here that resembles things like development aid and things like that that are attractive to people. So I wonder, kind of, for our last question, you know, one of the things that struck me about these projects is that they kind of fail. I mean, you mentioned you know Michael Oliver's projects never really seem to you know take off. You mentioned Sealand, which also fall apart you know, the latest, you know, iterations, some space colonization to, you know, Peter Thiel bought New Zealand citizenship, but when the pandemic came, he went to Hawaii, you know, they them really seemed to work out or achieve their political goals. So I wonder, do you think that libertarian exit will continue to animate in, in the future? And if so, which projects and, and what should we look out for and what should we worry be worried about with these projects? Yeah, you know, the, there's a lot of others too, Galt's Gulch in Chile. I mean, there's so many of these, you know, projects that call themselves Galt something. I mean, it's just so unoriginal. So, I mean, yeah, most of these, most of these tank, you know, one of the points I try to make in the book is that the, the terrible thing is it's not that they tank. I mean, you know, uh, I'm not worried about that, but they still have these disastrous effects. I mean, in the Bahamas, it created turmoil for Pindling and his government. You know, Pindling was very worried about these guys. And who knows what direction things could have gone in with just a, some kind of pivot from people in Abaco or something like this. I mean, Vanuatu had created a rebellion in which people died and people were displaced. People's reputations and names were sullied for, for, for the historical record. I mean, just, you know, had these really quite intense effects. And, you know, in the case of the Minerva Reefs, I mean, the ecological effects would have been disastrous and they were already starting to look bad. They were dredging the lagoon and piling sand on top of the reef. And then they were going to take coral and encase it in chicken wire and fill it with concrete to build a city that would eventually house 30,000 people. I mean, it's, you know, this massive, extravagant ecological disaster. And so the contemporary projects, I mean, the ones I think that I find most worrisome are the ones that probably most closely resemble what you raised before, which is classic colonialism. And so the projects in Honduras, I find deeply troubling. It's not clear they're going to go anywhere now that there's been elections and the election results were actually allowed to stand. And so Kiyomara Castro uh, de Zelaya has won. 
and she's not a fan of these kind of what they've called special economic employment zones. One of them looks like it'll still be going forward, but it doesn't look like it's going to have, this is on uh, Roatan, the island of Roatan. It's called Roatan Prospera. And I don't think, as far as I can tell, it doesn't look like they're going to get their sort of libertarian sovereignty. But that was a project entirely man-driven, right? The entire board was male. The lead architect was Patrick Schumacher from a very famous architectural firm in London, Zaya Hadid Architects. And calls himself an anarcho-capitalist, deeply publicly outspoken against social housing. And then you had an array of other figures, Joel Baumgar, who's a Mississippi Republican, anti-abortion, a social conservative. Again, that kind of social conservative libertarian mix is very common, I think, in the United States and the UK. And you got an array of other figures as well, some of them who are linked up with the current administrations in the UK and come out of that same Institute for Economic Affairs or whatever it's called, it's very libertarian-leaning, that, that the trusts and others came out of. Those projects, though, you know, I think in the mid-2010s, there was real concern that they were really going to go forward. And there was you know, going to be massive displacement of people. They were allied with an illegal coup regime that was that was violent and repressive uh, with links to narco-trafficking. And so those kinds of projects, I think, those are the things that I think are most worrisome going forward. You have an entire libertarian think tank apparatus operating called the Atlas Foundation, you know, and they've they've been involved in helping to organize, you know, the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff in Brazil. I mean, they're really they're 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 heavily lobbying and working, right? It's a sort of Koch brothers kind of thing. And I don't want to go down the kind of conspiratorial rabbit holes, but on the other hand, like these are, you know, these are networks that are active and hard at work and they want to see these things put into fruition. And I think what's going to happen is, in some sense, my concern is that a lot of these projects are planting, they're doing exactly right what some of these libertarians said they wanted to do, plant seeds, right? They're just planting seeds of thought. And then you're going to see the gradual encroachment, the gradual encroachment, the gradual encroachment. And then bef before you know it, they're, they're here. The person that I often point out might be the one that we want to look at when we're thinking about these projects in terms of fiction is J.G. Ballard. And Ballard's work is that, you know, the future is going to be boring and it's going to be a sort of hyper version of what we're already living. And that means essentially all incredibly exclusionary gated communities of the ultra wealthy who effectively are going to dominate the communities around them in all different kinds of ways, economically, physically, through violence and the like. And, you know, I think Ballard's vision is depressingly possible. Mm -hmm.